1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times. I'm with Mary Catherine Carmichael, the director of leadership, Bloomington, Monroe County. And today, we're going to talk about issues of child abuse. Uh, We have three guests with us in the studio. Dr. Debbie Herbenek, who is with the uh, Kinsey Institute. She's a researcher and has uh, done some work on psychological effects of sexual abuse in children and, and is an expert in sexuality. We also have Kristen Bechet from Monroe County Court-Appointed Special Advocates, the CASA program. And also Monroe County Circuit Judge Steve Galvin is here, who has a long history of dealing with uh, youth in the the criminal justice system. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348. And our web address, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, if you want to join the conversation there. Uh, our producer, uh, Daniel, when he sent out the, the uh, message about uh, the promotions about this program, referred to a recent report by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that found 20, over 24,000 cases of child abuse in Indiana in 2009. Um, that number puts the state's abuse rate much higher than the national average. So, uh, I guess that's where we sort of start this program. And I want to yeah. throw that those statistics out and just sort of ask for all of your opinions about why Indiana would be higher. Why? Why, why should our rate be higher than? other states. There's something we're not doing right. And Judge Galvin, let's start with you.
2: You know, it's interesting, Bob. I I can't say that I can account for that discrepancy. And I would even say that I've been doing, I've been a prosecutor, a public defender, a a judge, the attorney for the Department of Child Services, and done these things over the last 30 years. And I think that the difference that I've seen between 30 years ago when I started and today is that the general public... um, is far more aware of reporting of abuse and neglect. There's a legal duty that you have in the state of Indiana to report any abuse and neglect that you become aware of, and that is, uh, there's a criminal sanction if you fail to report it. And I find that folks today, uh, whether it's teachers, whether it's service providers, hospital personnel, doctors, um, whoever has much greater um, knowledge Uh, about the subject and and understand their duty to report. So I have to say that in that sense, I I see this in a positive light and not a negative light.
1: Yeah. Numbers are always interesting to look at because if if there's more education in the state, if there's more awareness in the state, then having a higher number might actually mean that the state is doing a better job. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Kristen?
3: Absolutely. I agree. The The fact that we have higher numbers, I think, is due to the fact that the public is more vigilant in watching Mm -hmm. out for our children. Um, I believe that with each case that is opened and each child that is looked upon to make sure that they are being safe and secure, then it's much better for all children in our community. Um, Other states and their reporting laws may differ. And that may be the discrepancy. But as Judge Galvin said, I think it is a positive, not a negative. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the fact that there are less abuse cases in other states. Mm-hmm. I think we're
4: just finding out more
3: about them. Mm. Okay,
1: Debbie, do you have any reaction to the numbers?
4: I'm in absolute agreement. Yeah. I mean, it's there's no doubt that as much as uh, we find the abuse of children to be troubling, whether it's emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, some constellation of, of these – um, that it is common throughout the states, right? Mm-hmm. And so, when I hear that number, I don't think as much. What are we doing wrong? Even though there's clearly a lot of wrong being done, but uh, what are we doing right? What are what are our strengths that we're getting these actually reported and looked into?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you just mentioned something I wanted to ask about, and that's to kind of get a definition of of child abuse. I mean, how, what's the what's the range of um, how's the, how how is it defined? And what's the what are the range of, of bad things that can happen to children that would rise to the level of abuse as a court system would see
2: it? Well, certainly, um, there, the incidence of uh, abuse that we all commonly think of as abuse, um, a parent uh, physically harming their child um, is, is the classic case of abuse. Um, and, of course, neglect. Many of the neglect uh, situations that we see in my court are generated by the abuse of uh, drugs and alcohol. Uh, We find many parents who are unable to care for their children, uh, and that is the definition of neglect, that they're unable to to properly provide care, supervision, uh, and meet the general welfare of the child. Uh, That is a common cause that we face. Sexual abuse, certainly. uh, Child sexual abuse, we see a great deal of. Uh, and And that is part of the the equation also mm-hmm. what What kind of numbers do we see in Monroe county? Last year we had uh, two hundred i 'm sorry in two thousand and ten we had one hundred and eighty one children in need of services cases. We call these chins cases, uh, but chins is uh, short for children in need of services. And these take in all cases of abuse and neglect, where the court intervention the coercive intervention of the court is necessary
1: mm-hmm. um, I want to turn back to debbie for a minute about about sexual abuse in children because I, I think that 's something that most people I, I like to think most pe- a vast majority of people just can 't understand the you know the attraction the 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 urge, whatever. Um, can you sort of explain the psychological um, well, first of all, the psychological damage that happens to a, to a child, the damage that happens to a child. And and also just a little bit about this whole area of child sexual abuse.
4: These are good questions mm-hmm. and big questions. Yeah, I too. know. We,
1: only, we don't have uh, three hours. Right, right.
4: <laughs> um, you know, the short of it, of course, is that uh, many young children and, and adolescents are uh, experienced sexual abuse by parents, by other relatives, often people who are known to them, especially when they're younger, um, or by, you know, other individuals known to the family, less commonly by strangers, especially for girls. Um, And they may do so for a variety of reasons. They may be put in harm's way through neglect from their parents, again, due to drugs or alcohol is often the case. Um, In rare situations, you have... um, you know, children who end up uh, almost being traded for sex by their parents—that's uncommon. What you more often see is the family type of sexual abuse. Many children and teenagers do experience long-term negative outcomes, including depress- depression, anxiety, difficulties forming friendships and really in romantic relationships later on, and sexual problems as adults. That's not to say that all do, and that's not. And, and to and to say that. Many, many children make it out all right isn't to say that this type of contact is it's OK, is okay mm-hmm. but it's to say that fortunately many children and adolescents are resilient and have supportive services around them, have community organizations that back them up, get support in the court, get support at home. Um, the, the case of why people are attracted to children is a much bigger issue um, and is something that people who study pedophilia and an attraction to children are still grappling with.
1: Mm-hmm. Is it a power issue?
4: So a, a power issue would be a, a different reason for mm-hmm. wanting to be sexual with children as an adult. Um, generally, pedophilia seems to be more of a lifelong attraction uh, to either young children for certain types of injo- individuals or to uh, pubertal age children. So Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen-year-olds is more mm-hmm. common. So these tend to be different individuals, mm-hmm. um, and fortunately, not all people who are attracted to, you know, to children or puberty age or puberty age children end up acting on it. Many of them are able to find services, find counseling, find therapy, and learn how to live their lives with those attractions and not act on it. Um, there's actually an organization called Before You Act, which encourages them to seek help. Um, so it's the ones, of course, that that are more prone to acting on this, that we need to do a better job of identifying early uh, and putting a stop to it and getting them services so that if they do do it, that we are able to pre- prevent it from happening again.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers are 855-0811, 285 9348 the web address is WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We're talking about child abuse, um, the range of issues involved with child abuse. Uh, Kristen Bechet is with the Monroe County Court Appointed Special Advocates, the CASA program. And uh, Judge Galvin mentioned 181 Chen's cases last year. <clears throat> Excuse me. How many cases did CASA get involved with?
3: We are assigned to almost 100 percent of those kids. <clears throat> um, every once in a while, we have to recuse ourselves from a case um, because of past um, Conflict of interest issues. But most of them come to us and to our program, and we assign them as we have a volunteer available to to go with that case. Um, what we're finding in the CASA program, a great deal of the sexual abuse occurs in homes that there's a lot of drug use. And where there are a lot of, or um, drug dealing, and there are a lot of individuals of you know shady characters that are in and out of the home a great deal, mm-hmm. and these children are exposed to many more of these people mm-hmm. than an average child would be. Um, we do find where parents will look the other way in exchange for drugs or drug money, um, and. It's, it's horrific. We've, we hear these stories on you know, law and order out in New York City and Chicago, but people don't realize this is happening in Bloomington, mm-hmm. and it happens way too often.
1: Mm. Yeah, the CASA program <clears throat> seems like it's always in need of volunteers to help. And also I, th- I think it's probably one of those programs that does such you know, exceptional work in the community but sort of flies under the radar mm-hmm. because the court system is kind of – in some ways, hidden away. I mean, even though we write about it in the newspaper and all, we don't write, write about a lot of these you know, child abuse cases because children are protected. And so um, could you sort of describe what ACASA what does? How do you help? How do you advocate for the child?
3: Being a, uh, in the role as a CASA volunteer is a unique volunteer experience. Um, it's much more involved as far as the time commitment. We um, ask that people commit a year to two years, and it's not necessarily the length and time, but we want the CASA to stay with the case until for the full duration of the case. We don't want a volunteer to leave, be another adult that leaves that child mm-hmm. in this crisis situation. Um Volunteers are advocates for the child and for the best interest of the child. They will monitor a case. When they're assigned a case, they're going to go out and talk to everybody they can that has pertinent information about that child or sibling group they're assigned to. They're going to talk to daycare workers, to teachers, to foster parents, to the parents and therapists. They're going to get all the information they can. Through that information, they're going to... um, have recommendations. And those recommendations are given to the Department of Child Services um, on an informal basis saying, you know, this is what we're finding. Can we try to get the service implemented for this child or the family? And also we give the recommendations in a court report to the judge. And then the judge will decide whether or not he can order those recommendations. Um, the CASA volunteer is another set of eyes in with that family. And the volunteer is unique in the respect that they are focusing solely on the child. The Department of Child Services, their goal is to help the entire family. And whereas CASA wants to as well, our eyes are there and our ears are there for the child and what's in the very best interest of the child. And to report that to the court, so the judge has all the information he needs to make mm-hmm. the right decisions. Mm-hmm.
1: So the fact that it's a court-appointed special advocate means that you have the power of the court behind you. I mean, I could see where this could, where this could be a a real tricky situation because you still have a family unit, and you're somebody outside the family unit that's focused on the child. Uh, it seems to me that it could bring some conflicts with the family, but mm-hmm. but since you have the court behind you, I assume that helps to uh,
3: Minimize that. Minimize and, that. Yeah. You know what is interesting, the turning point in dealing with the parents is when you tell them that you're a volunteer. I don't get paid for this I, and they just they are just shocked. What do you what do you mean you don't get paid for this? You're doing this on your own time. And so once you get over that hurdle and once you really explain if the volunteer explains their job and position well, the parent usually understands that you are there for the child, and when you say, I'm here for the best interest of your child, just like you are, I mean, the parents can say, well, right, I want the best for my child, too. Mm-hmm. So it most cases, it's not adversarial. When it gets to extreme situations where the termination of the rights of the parents are done, then it can be adversarial, but most of the time it's not. Never have we had an issue where a cost is in danger. Um, we treat... Safety issues i mean treat train safety issues and and prepare our volunteers, but we haven't faced that in the twenty six years of being a program mm-hmm.
0: you know I've had katsa ex- we've had it explained many times on the show and and of course you know we're big fans but I'm wondering if you could actually talk us through maybe just and with no names, of course, but an actual CASA's experience. So people who are listening to the show today and are intrigued at this prospect, but may be looking for um, just, you know, a real concrete example to help them make the decision one way or the other could have that to go to.
3: When a volunteer receives a case. They will go to the Department of Child Services and read over all the files. They're a legal party to the case, so they have access to everything. They'll go and review the file, They interview the case manager, and then they'll start talking to the individuals. They'll go meet with the child. What's important is develop a relationship with the child so that child entrusts you with information.
0: So you're driving out to their home, wherever that is, knocking on the door, making an appointment ahead of time, saying, Hi, You know, I'm, I'm here to interview your
3: family. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and spending some time with the child, you might sit the first meeting or two, you might sit down with this child and work a puzzle together. Um, just engage in an activity so, again, the child gets to know you. Then you'll be making phone calls. One contact leads to another. Um, the foster parent may say, well, you know, Aunt Jane might have some information about what little Johnny went through, and so you'll get Aunt Jane's contact information and give her a call and say, can we have a conversation? Some of the work is done over the phone. Mm-hmm. Some of it's done through email. Not all of it is face-to-face. Um, a volunteer spends anywhere from 10 to 12, 15 hours a month um, communicating with all the individuals. Um, they go to case conferences where all the parties, the parents, the therapists, the service providers will sit and talk about the case and make a plan on what is the next step forward to help make this family safer and make it stronger so the child can return to the home.
1: Mm-hmm. Ha- how old are the kids you're working with?
3: Anywhere from birth to 18.
1: Okay, so up to 18 years old. And they
0: may be with their parents now, or they may be, as you mentioned, in a foster home already,
3: or... Yes, they they can be um, in three different places. They can be in a relative home, a foster home, or what we call an in-home chins. So they're still part of a chins action, but they... the. We all feel that the child is safe enough to be at home with some services provided in the home and mm-hmm. monitoring.
1: And the uh, CASA, I assume, goes to the court hearings? If yes. A, you're always there at the court.
3: Always at the court, a legal party of the case, so mm-hmm. they have the right to ask questions in the court, present evidence in the court.
0: Judge, I know you're a big fan of CASA. We've talked about oh, yes. it before. You're a big champion. Tell me how you interact with the CASA. I mean, is it someone you feel you ever just contact and say, hey, I have a question about this case? Or how does how does it work for you?
2: Because they are a party to the proceeding, um, I can't have contact about an individual case outside the courtroom. Oh. And so uh, having said that, they're critical for this process, this, this reunification process for the family. But primarily as a voice for the child in court, and a voice that the child would normally not have. If the casa wasn't there, and I've been in—I'm old enough now to remember when we when we didn't have casas. There's no one there to speak directly for the child, mm-hmm. and this is a great point I think to put in a plug for them. <laughs> um, I would strongly urge any of your listeners to consider uh, volunteering. As a CASA, we have the what I would consider to be the, the best program, in, certainly in the state and perhaps in the nation. We, it is a public-private partnership, uh, and uh, the CASAs are well-trained, and they perform a function that cannot be performed by anyone else. It's not uncommon for me to uh, ask a CASA who's been on the, a case for a year, how much time have you put into this, and, and to be told, 100 hours. Now, that doesn't mean the average volunteer has to do that, but what it points out is that once you become involved, you become committed, mm-hmm. and our causes are committed, and we have doctors and lawyers and housewives and seniors and students um, who volunteer and who are trained and who provide this function, and they always come in with the same um, attitude. They're somewhat reticent when they to talk in court, but when they realize that if they don't say those words for the child, those words will never be said. It's amazing how they find their voice, isn't it, Kristen? I, um, and it is amazing that the job that that, that they do. Um, you mentioned
1: it's a public-private partnership. How does that work? So half the funding comes from – or part of the funding comes
2: from county actually, government? Actually, less than half of the funding comes from county government, mm-hmm. um, a little over $100,000. The remainder is paid for in grants and is fundraised by – the the CASA uh, mm-hmm. uh, board members and, and other volunteers in this community, um, I could not – if we didn't have them, I could not duplicate this program for hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the volunteer time that we get from the CASAs and the contribution that they make for our children and families, um, I hate to reduce it to dollars and cents, but if you do that uh, – we could not uh, begin to touch this for a quarter of a million dollars. Um,
0: well, how else are you going to get one person assigned to one case? I mean, that's just unheard of in any is. other uh, branch of, I hate to say, but government, but it really is. It is. Um, uh, you know, to have one-on-one like that, you're, you're, you're right, it would be impossible to duplicate that. And
1: uh, you, you alluded to this. I was going to ask about you know Monroe County's program. I know we're all very proud of what we do here in Monroe County a lot of things uh, seem to be progressive and we do very well but how how common are CASA programs around the state and around the nation Um, and you know you say you think it's one of the best if not the best in the entire nation but are there are there gaps are there big gaps where a lot of counties don't have a a similar program so their kids don't have this kind of advocate
2: Um, there are Areas in the state of Indiana that do not have CASA programs, and the CASA programs, the kind of programs, vary from county to county. Under Indiana law, you're required to have a CASA on every chins case. But in many counties, to, to provide this function, they hire one person who goes around and, as you might think, has no ability to put the kind of time into it that a volunteer would have. And so many of the programs around the state do not rely on volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are – and I, Kristen could probably uh, tell you better than I could that the number of counties that are yet to uh, have CASA programs up and running, but there are very few. Mm-hmm. But we have – our our uh, CASA program is the paradigm that you would want to –
1: Twenty-six years old. Is that what you said?
3: Twenty-six. We Uh were in the second program in the state of Indiana. And when we first started the program, we talked about all the the higher level of child abuse cases reported in Indiana. Um, It's interesting to note that Indiana was at the forefront of this CASA movement. We were the third state in the nation to implement it into the states. And um, to have the support of the Supreme Court that we do and um, the legislation that we do. What is that support you are talking about, the support from the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court um, gives grant money for, to the different CASA programs to help us run the programs. And it is um, given to us per. It's divvied out per number of cases each county has, mm. and so we we get that support. They also um, house and um, run the um, state office of CASA and Gal, and the point of that is I I didn't realize this till just recently. Not all states in the union have a CASA program, um, a state CASA run program. Mm-hmm. Um, all states except one have CASA. Individual county programs. But to have a state office that we can all collaborate with and get um, mentoring from, it's a real, real good thing for the different programs, especially the startups. Mm-hmm.
0: Kristen, I would think there would be um, a lot of emotional investment on the part of CASA volunteers. What's it like to be a CASA from that
3: standpoint? It is emotional. And before we accept a person as a volunteer, we do talk through that very thoroughly. And as much as you think you're going to be prepared for the different situations you see, um, you do get surprised at your emotions. Um, what we do is we have great supervision within the staff, each CASA volunteer. They they're appointed to their own case and it's that that's their case but they do have support and guidance from a staff CASA supervisor
0: mm-hmm.
3: and so we many days we'll have a person walk in with no appointment and say I need to talk and we'll shut the door and they'll just sit down and just vent um, it, it can be very frustrating the system can be slow by. No one's real fault. It's just a system, and CASA volunteers—they want to speed it up. They want to say, you know, why, why are we just lagging here? We need to get this done. Get this done, and you know, it, it, that can be very frustrating. Um, we try to match cases with particular volunteers in the interview process. If a CASA volunteer has experienced any kind of abuse in their own family, within themselves or own family. Depending on that type of abuse, we may not match them if we have known that type of abuse is with them. So we try to be careful with that, and we try to give as much support to the CASA as we can. But it is there. We can't we can't sugarcoat that. There must be a flip side to that, too, though. Absolutely. To be able to go into the courtroom and say, I need A, B, and C to happen for this child because I am absolutely adamant that this child is going to be safer and be able to be in a permanent home if this happens you have opposition, sometimes financially restri- financial restrictions. And you go in there and you tell the judge, this is why I think this is necessary and these are the facts to back it up. And he rules in your favor on your recommendation. It You walk out of there with your head so high because, you know, <laughs> hey, the court listened. He agreed with you. and But the most important thing, you know that child is better off because of the work that you've done.
1: Mm-hmm. We're going to have to take a, a short break. We're uh, talking about um, – child abuse, and we've spent a lot of time talking about the CASA program, which we'll talk about more uh, after we come back, along with uh, a lot of other issues, I'm sure, that will come up. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
2: This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. Programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini-quiz, as well as play and opera reviews are all available on demand. Find out more at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 1133 a.m. 11.55 11.55 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. to catch that day's feature. They're also archived on our website, wfiu.org.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from The Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael from the Leadership Bloomington-Monroe County Program. We are talking about uh, child abuse today and issues of child abuse. Joining us in the studio are Dr. Debbie Herbennick from the Kinsey Institute. And she's, uh, a, she studies uh, sexuality and has uh, information about sexual abuse in children as well to share with us. Um, Kristen Bechet is here from the Monroe County Court Appointed Special Advocates, the CASA program. And Monroe County Circuit Judge Steve Galvin is also here with us today. You can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. Our web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. We were, uh, before the break, we were talking a lot about the CASA program and all, all that the advocate does for the child. And I wanted to ask uh, Debbie Herbenik about um, the the effect on a child who suffered child abuse or, or sexual abuse and, and how having an advocate outside of the family, somebody looking out for that child's interest might help that child uh, in the uh, long term.
4: Mm-hmm. A child that's experienced um, abuse, whether, again, whether it's physical, sexual, and so on, um, often feels powerless, often feels uh, perhaps that they don't even uh, know if what's happened to them is wrong or if anybody cares or, or how to fix the situation. And so having an advocate uh, for them is great, right? It, it would be wonderful if this came from within their own family, but not every child has that type of support from within from within their own family. So, to have an advocate, to have a casa there with them, um, can be very reassuring. Can uh, give them hope. Which is one of the things that we all need when we, mm-hmm. when we face any type of adversity, that this will get better, that somebody has their back, that they're not crazy, that they're not mm-hmm. wrong, that somebody is, is there fighting for them. And I think Kristen made a very important point about this being somebody who is committed to them and who will follow through and who won't leave them during a very difficult time in their life. My,
0: you can only imagine how affirming that is. I mean, as, a, as adults, anytime somebody says, that's right, you are if you're wondering, like, that doesn't feel right, something's wrong here, and someone backs you up and says, that's right, that is wrong, and I'm going to stand next to you and, and help you proclaim that that's wrong and fix it, that feels great, even if it's just an argument you're in with someone. I can only, you know, you can imagine Absolutely. them for a child who's in real trouble. Mm-hmm. And,
1: and as a follow-up, I am mean, in the area of, of sexual abuse, I mean, for a young child who hasn't doesn't really understand what sexuality is. I mean, the point that you made about um, whether this is right, wrong, is this normal. Um, I mean, how how um, can you sort of describe that a little bit, I Molly, mean, for a young child that that's, that again is is sexually abused? This whole notion of what happened, you know, how. It's kind of explain that to me a little yeah, bit. So, so Sorry. this is a
4: particularly sensitive and, and difficult area for many professionals, even to work with, because, of course, depending on the age of the child, uh, they they may know almost nothing mm-hmm. about sexuality. Uh, or they may know quite a lot. And and of course, depending on what's happened to them as Mm -hmm. well and who they've been able to talk about it with. So one of the important aspects of of training these types of individuals, whether it's a volunteer or a professional who's working with children, is of course how to even respond. Uh, Because even the most well-meaning responses need to be done in a way that is supportive of the child, but that also doesn't further traumatize them. Mm -hmm. Um, So as difficult as these um, experiences can be, one of the important things often is not to magnify it even more so that if the child has experienced something that they don't feel like this is potentially catastrophic. And I think that's the value of this really great commitment to training and a screening of volunteers um, so that they're perhaps not bringing their own baggage Mm -hmm. into this and projecting Mm -hmm. on child. So this is the value of having a well-organized program like CASA that can provide good training to volunteers so that they are there, they're advocating for the child, they're sticking up for them, but they're also behaving in a way that's most supportive and that will lead to better outcomes for the child um, and not make their experience potentially worse. Thanks for so you're me. not looking for drama. You're looking for just things to get done, right? Because because yeah. mm-hmm. in in years past, this is less common mm-hmm. now. But but many years ago, there were certainly some communities, very high profile cases where, um, you know, particularly uh, by kind of early responders like police in, mm-hmm. in abuse cases, um. That, that some of these cases were, were made worse in the way that they were handled. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've learned a lot in the past couple of decades as a field in, in how you respond to children and how you provide them services and support and get them through a system like this.
1: All right, we have a phone call. Let's go to Lucy on the phone. Lucy?
4: Yes, hello. Um, I work for the school corporation, and so um, I'm well aware of
3: duty to report laws and um, often find that I either myself or our social worker needs to call the department children's services DCS. Um, There's been a lot of changes in the way DCS takes calls, takes reports, um, and screens out, uh, frankly, the majority that we call in. And so I just wondered if you could all comment on that, if you know more about the way DCS has recently uh, rearranged their department, and um,
4: if you have any insight into if this is going to help or harm um, our children who are being abused.
3: All right. Kristen? It is true that um, it's not been quite a year yet, but um, all reporting used to come directly into the the county office. And um, each staff member would take a turn on the phones, accepting phone calls throughout the day. Now there's a centralized call center up in Indianapolis where every single phone call is is directed up there and um, reviewed by um, trained personnel. Almost all of the personnel up there are um, caseworkers and have years of experience in the field. Um, as any new system, this this has had a few bumps in the road. But I do know that Monroe County specifically is actually going out on more calls and investigating more cases than they did prior to this call center. Hmm. And um, there could be different reasons why um, – it depends on the, the person who is screening the call. But um, a lot of calls are also given to them where the caller won't ID themselves. They know that abuse is going on, but they don't know the name of the child. They don't know the address. There's no identifying information. So what what are they supposed to do with that? Um, the, the, a lot of calls are done in that respect, and people are afraid to give too much information. But I do know that the call center is, is – um, creating more calls uh, or, or responses to calls in Monroe County. So um, I, I think it's productive. And I mm-hmm. I understand that it's a, it's, it's a cost-effective way. But it's also to standardize everything throughout the state. There are a lot of disparities from county to county. And Monroe County has always been one of the better counties as far as responses and um, giving services. And because we are always backed up by the county commissioners and the council. And mm-hmm. um, so we're used to really high standards. There are other counties that... Are so at the other end of the spectrum that now they think, "Wow, this is this is so much more intense than what we've ever experienced." But what we're finding out is that um, that we're getting more responses in Monroe County. Okay, thank
1: you, Judge Galvin. Do you want to respond to that?
2: Well, Lucy, I, I think it's I think it's fair to say that in my experience, the call center uh, is working statewide and it is providing continuity across the state. I do think that sometimes what's lost is the local knowledge um, of the individual caseworkers, and I'm not always certain how well we communicate, how well DCS communicates that local knowledge uh, to the folks at the call center. I think they're doing the very best they can. Um, and uh, But it, as you might uh, imagine, the average caseworker who's been on the job and perhaps dealing with uh, families uh, and may be well aware of the family or their relatives may have knowledge that is simply not going to be uh, distillable into sound bites or a, a brief description for the call center. And so that is the something that I think D.C. Has, has to watch, and I think they are very cognizant of it. And this is something that in my conversations, both locally and with the folks at the state, um, I do think that they're they are aware of it and trying to uh urge caseworkers to, to provide that local knowledge uh in in the reports.
1: All right. Our phone numbers again eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight 285 9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. WFIU.org slash and in addition is our web address.
0: Well, I just um so tell me the what the source of uh, information most often is as, as the, you know, the, what gets the court involved? Is it usually police interaction or a neighbor calling or how does the whole ball uh, get rolling for to uh, provide help to a child in need?
2: Well, it, it comes to me um, after the Department of Child Services has made a conscious decision to file and to request, the again, the coercive intervention of the court in order to deal with a problem with the family. It means that the child's not being protected. And most often comes to me in the form of a request to detain the child, that the Department of Child Services has taken immediate emergency action to remove the child. And they are coming to me, as they're required to do within 48 hours, to hold a hearing to make a determination as to whether or not that removal was warranted. And if I make a determination it was not, I would return the child. If I find that it is warranted, then the child would remain in placement.
0: It's a lot of pressure.
2: It's my job.
0: <laughs> a lot of pressure. <laughs> I'm sticking <laughs> with my comment. <laughs>
1: we have a, a phone call from Wayne. Wayne? Hi. Hi, Wayne.
0: How, how outrageous would it be to suggest that child neglect and abuse is related to family breakdown, you know, to, to, to devaluing of marriage? So, so wouldn't it be in the interest of society, as, as well as children, for government to encourage strong families, to discourage divorce, you know, to restore the cultural value of marriage, one man and one woman till death do us part, you know, repeal no fault divorce laws, give tax breaks to long lasting marriages, because because long lasting marriages don't cost government so much money. You know, they they, they rear children that are not abused and have that that have wholesome values.
1: I think you get the idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wayne, thanks for your comments. Uh, Steve, any uh, reaction to that?
2: You know, it's interesting. Um, I I have a child of my own, and I think, Wayne, that your point that it's easier for two parents to raise a child than one is, quite frankly, in my experience, over 30 years, accurate. It is easier. Um, It doesn't mean that that, uh, individual uh, parents don't do a good job of raising their children. In fact, they do. I think that a greater impact than simply the, the social uh, sanction of marriage is the number of single family parents that we have and the number of children born out of wedlock that uh, are born to parents who are addicted to drugs, who are uh, using alcohol uh, in excess, who are um, simply uh, They may have mental illnesses that make them unable to care for their children. And I think that what I see in court on a day-to-day basis is related more to uh, those factors than simply to to put it as the breakdown of marriage. But I do think that your point is valid in saying that it is easier. It is uh, in many ways preferable if the child has two parents as it's preferable if the child has an extended family as well.
0: This is a little bit of a left turn, but, you know, I I take my class every year, and and, uh, after we have the pleasure of talking with you and your colleagues, we then um, go over and talk with Jim Kennedy, and we do a a jail tour, and and Jim often mentions that um, it's – Kind of the same group of folks that he sees over and over again, kind of, you know, they come in and they leave for a while and then they end up back again. And I'm wondering if you have a similar experience um, in your court or if it's always uh, or tends to be new people all the time coming through the system.
2: It's uh, certainly the, the uh, inability to parent can be intergenerational. And by that I mean we. I. It's not uncommon for me to see somebody come into court that I may have defended 30 years ago as a juvenile, mm-hmm. when I was a public defender, who is now a parent. Um, having said that, I think one of the things that we've done in this county over that 30 year period. We before I ever took the bench, there's a wonderful lady who I hope everybody's familiar with, Viola Taliaferro. Who for 15, 16 years was the juvenile court judge, and who demanded that these families get services. And I think that that philosophy carried through with Judge David Welch, and to me, uh, and that has been the philosophy in this county. And I, I firmly believe, and I, and I have to tell you, I can't, I don't have statistics at my fingertips, but I believe that it's made a difference, and I believe it continues to make a difference. So. Yes, it's true that individuals may come back to the jail chronically, and it is true that we see families where one parent was unable to care for the child and the child who's now a parent is unable to care for the child. But the services that we've provided uh, have prevented far more of those cases from arising. Uh, And uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer that our approach, the approach of giving services to families, to try and reunite those families, to give drug and alcohol treatment, to give parenting instruction has had a very, very positive impact on the lives of children.
1: In in your experience, I mean, what, what percentage, I don't mean a specific percentage, but roughly, you know, how many of these families are really interested and eager to get help and will follow through and how many just sort of say, well, I was raised this way. I turned out all right. And
2: mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a process. Um, Oftentimes the families come to us, and I know Kristen's smiling next to me because <laughs> she knows this. Very often parents come in, and, and I will take a – we talked about drug addiction. It's common for the parent to appear in court. The child's been removed from them. They are currently addicted. They are um, perhaps coming down. From the drugs, while they're in court, they're they're tearful, they're angry, they're unable to deal with the circumstances, and they don't want to hear either from the judge, or for the from the Department of Child Services, or from their own attorneys. Quite frankly, at that point, and yet after a period of sobriety, um, all at once that CASA becomes very important to them, and those services that they're getting become very important to them, and. I have to tell you that over time, I, one of my common experiences in, in my day-to-day work as a judge is to have people come up to me and say, you don't remember me, do you? But you were my judge three years ago, and you demanded that I do this, this, and this. And that Department of Child Services got me help with, with my problems, and this is my son. And this is how we're doing. And they want to tell you that. Um, it sounds corny. Some of the best things you do in life are corny. Um, I hope that answers your <laughs> question. Sure. We, we have people who never come out of the spiral of, yeah. of the inability to care for their children. And and some of the most heartbreaking cases are individuals who, due to mental illness, simply cannot care for their children. Um, But the vast majority of our cases, the children are returned and the family is able to carry on without further intervention.
1: Well, I think – no, you answered my question. I think, you know, it goes to the heart of, you know, what we hear a lot of is sometimes people who are in a a, a downward spiral uh, generational poverty or generational abuse. It's just really hard to get out of. And and what you're saying is that there are programs and there are many success stories.
2: There are. We just don't – quite frankly, we probably don't trumpet those like we should. Right. 855-0811-877-285-9348
1: eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight those are our phone numbers wfiu.org slash noon edition. We only have six or seven minutes to go, but if you uh, have a burning uh, question, you certainly can still still phone us. Um, I want to ask about you know this this range of abuse i think we i think most people have a general sense of sexual abuse of children and why that's wrong and that it is wrong, and you can identify you turn somebody in um, you know on the other end of the spectrum and this m- might sound kind of funny but you know going to a, you could be in a store in mm-hmm. Bloomington and you see somebody you know slap their child or really do something that you know to to me it looks like you know if they're doing that in public what possibly could they be doing in private anybody have any uh, suggestions for a a response that won't wind up with the police being called because you know you talking to the parent get into a brawl or something i mean is there is there a response if you see something like that that you should should have or should you just stay out of it
3: i would not engage Um, you're putting yourself (laughs) at risk Mm -hmm. you can possibly escalate the parents anger And the child could receive that repercussion after you leave or after they leave the store. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't engage. If you feel that it's severe enough, then call. Mm -hmm. The mandated um, reporting, you call the 800 number and um, tell them what you saw. Um, If in a worst case scenario, I might go to the store manager and say I'm concerned about this child in aisle eight. But I wouldn't engage. Would you, Mm -hmm. Judge?
1: No. Yeah. Is it – if I know this is a really hard question, but I mean, if you see something like that, is is there? I mean, I know anybody's going to be concerned about it. If they see, or a lot of people are going to be concerned about it. If they see it, but is there real reason for concern? I mean, is some kind of activity like that indicative of something that might be really wrong in that? Family situation, or might be just. I've got to
3: back up a minute. You guys wouldn't sneak off and call nine one one on them. (laughs) I'm serious. Oh, I would do that. I just wouldn't engage the parent. All right, I wouldn't walk up to the parent and say, "Hey, stop that." We can't give this a pass, people. No, no, no. No. I I would report, but I wouldn't. I.
2: You have a legal duty to report.
3: If they were in aisle eight, I'd be in aisle seven on nine one one.
2: But I will tell you, from the take the, the police officer's point of view too, in reacting to the call and. Under Indiana law, you have a right to physically discipline your child as long as you're not abusing your child and as long as you're not physically harming your child. Um, If you realize, if you see someone who is, in your opinion, harming that child, physically harming them, you've got a duty to report it. The officer will come and investigate and DCS will come and investigate if it rises to the level of, in, in police officers' opinion, something that has to be uh, reported or uh, and in most cases that will obviously be reported. Um, but you've raised an interesting point, Bob, that um, that line between what is abuse and what is standard discipline is not always a clear one. Mm-hmm. And in Indiana, we, it, clearly the law says you have a right to uh, discipline your child. I say that in the abstract because quite frankly um, when you when you see it on a day-to-day basis, as I think we do, it's much easier to yeah. see the the line, um, the, the marks left on the child, the bruising, the and a, and a parent who would say, "I didn't intend this," which is a common refrain we hear. I, "I didn't mean to do this. I didn't mean to be as harsh with the child as I as I was." But. When you start to to see those things, that's crossing the line.
1: yeah, I don't want to give parents a pass, but but sometimes I think some incidents that I may have seen you know I, I would probably wouldn't call nine one one it's It makes me uncomfortable to see it, but you know children parents have a tough job, children can be frustrating, and there can be words spoken that seem abusive or seem harsh. But whether that rises to the level, I, I don't know. Debbie, did you?
4: Yeah. Well, I I think you're you are raising a very good point, and there is this broad range of of discipline, right? And I think many of us, probably most of us, have been in the public and have seen uh, what we assume to be the child's parent kind of, you know, whack them on the butt, um, and people have different sensitivities about that. And I think for in some cases. Uh, society swung a little bit far in one pendulum to kind of like the any spanking is a terrible thing. And in fact the research didn't actually find that, right? That that actually kind of this this more like you can see the line is actually pretty visible when you see it regularly. And I used to do a lot of work in another state in a foster care system and there is abuse and then there is a much more common spanking that research wise isn't isn't linked to any bad psychological outcomes. Um, and that I think most of us just wouldn't wouldn't report.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, we have about two minutes to go. So, Judge, I want you to give uh, again, sort of the, the the state law about you know what what are people what are people required to to go to authorities about if they suspect something if they see something
2: if you have. Uh, evidence and reason to believe that a child has been the victim of abuse, child abuse or neglect, you are under a a continuing and legal duty to report that to the proper authorities, that being the Department of Child Welfare or the police department.
1: Mm -hmm. And and when you say neglect, could that be... You know you, some, you, you know that somebody is you – know, they're leaving their house at night to go to the nightclub and their six-year-old
2: is His home alone. Home alone Absolutely. Kind of mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, times there is anonymity for the re- – uh, I shouldn't say oftentimes. There is anonymity for the reporting source. And oftentimes, people aren't certain. But to err on the side of making the report, there really is no downside to that. Uh, either for the child or for for the reporter, so as long as you're making the report in good faith and not and not making the report up, so to speak um, the reporting things that you are concerned about are important, and I'll give you an example um, uh, changing the facts. Changing the facts very briefly, a child that was – someone heard a child being, they thought, thrown against the wall, and they did report it. There was an investigation. Um, and um, they weren't sure what they were hearing, but it was lucky they did. As the child was severely injured. Oh, my
1: gosh. All right. We are out of time. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Steve Galvin, for being here with us today, Kristen Bechet from the Monroe County CASA program, and also Kinsey Institute researcher Debbie Herbenik. Thanks for being here, Debbie. Uh, for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Dan Goldblatt and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
2: Thank you.
4: Thank you.